around 13% of the population have a disability. And the unemployment rate for people with disabilities is nearly four times as high as Ireland's worst unemployment rate during the recession. My name is Stephen Norton and you are very welcome to the Good Boss Bad Boss podcast episode 16. Thank you for joining us as we explore the world of work and leadership from a variety of different industries. This podcast seeks to entertain, educate and hopefully change some behaviour to make working life better for all. Each year, large corporations proudly hail their diversity and inclusion policies. And it is true that the workplace is better for everyone because of this focus. However, I have worked with wheelchair users twice in my career, and it is one area in the DNI space that I think is neglected. If I am honest, my immediate reaction to the prospect of having a wheelchair user on my team was to see problems and challenges to overcome. Don't get me wrong, it didn't stop me from hiring the people, but I had a prejudice that clouded my view of the potential of the candidate, and that simply wasn't good enough on my part. I know better now. In this episode, I wanted to get a first-hand account of living and thriving with a disability. Kerry Leonard is a wheelchair user, a top-level archer having represented Ireland at Para Archery World Championships several times, has served on the volunteer board of IWA Sport, has an MSc in marketing practice from UCD Michael Smurfett Business School and has just recently landed her dream job. I spoke to Kerry about the challenges and opportunities that she has faced in work and life. It is a fascinating story of pure human spirit and resilience, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Kerry Leonard, you're very welcome to the Good Boss, Bad Boss podcast. So we're here on an absolutely overcast July day, <laughs> um, typical Irish summer, but we, we want to talk about good things because you've landed your dream job. You're, you're going to work for one of the big boys. I am. I'm going to work for Facebook next month. That's fantastic. For a very long time. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's amazing. Uh, Congratulations. So are you looking forward to it? I'm really looking forward to it. I think this week is the first week that I've been able to get excited about it because I landed the job a few months ago and delayed starting until after um, the summer of sport, after the Mm -hmm. Olympics and Paralympics. So Now I'm just kind of excited to get started and see what my role or what's expected of me in my role. You mentioned the Paralympics there. So obviously this is an audio medium, so people won't get the picture here, but you're in a wheelchair. And that's why you mentioned the Paralympics, because you're an archer. Yeah, I've been doing archery for a couple of years and I have represented Ireland uh, nationally and internationally. And I'm trying to qualify for the Tokyo Paralympics. So I've been to a couple of world championships and uh, a couple of qualifying events for Rio. Didn't quite make Rio. And so the plan was to try and qualify for Tokyo. And two of those qualifying events happened to occur just as COVID started. So they've all been delayed until next year. Lovely. So when does the campaign kick off again for qualification? For qualification, we have to wait until the dates are released. They haven't been released by World Archery yet. So um, when that happens, we can start planning for next year. Um, I do know a couple of events that were already pre-planned as the calendar is kind of planned two or three years in advance. But whether or not they're going to be moved in favor of the qualifying events, I don't know. So it's all very much up in the air at the minute. And how close were you to Rio? Rio. So uh, 
2015, I went to my first World Championships and I needed to finish eighth. I finished ninth. Oh, God. <laughs> At the European Championships, I needed to finish first and I finished second, technically. Oh, God. And then at the final qualifying tournament, I needed to finish top three and I finished seventh. So just outside of qualification every single time. <laughs> but that must make you, I mean, it's given you great experience at performing at, a, at those big events. It has. It really gave, gives you an idea of what to expect because in Ireland, I'm a minority in a minority sport. <laughs> so I'm the only person in a wheelchair on the line shooting and I compete against able-bodied people at competitions. So it's not until you go to international competition right. where you actually get to see other people with disabilities. And in that, um, I often heard people saying how strange it is uh, being around a large group of people with disabilities, kind of friends of mine who used to do tour guides and that kind of thing. And I used to laugh yeah. at them because they knew me. Yeah. Um, but when I went to my first international competition, which was years previous... I really got that feeling because yeah. it was the first time I'd seen 50 or 60 people either in chairs or with amputations. And it really was very, not uncomfortable, very disconcerting for me. And then yeah. I had to tell myself that I was buying into what they yeah, wanted yeah, to. Yeah. So um, after you get over that initial shock, when you're somebody, I grew up on a farm, very isolated yeah. in, in Meath. So once you realize that this is that experience, then you get over it and you start having those conversations and normalizing the whole thing yeah, and, yeah. and seeing what other people go through, which is very similar to yourself. Well, we're all afraid of humans now after lockdown. I mean, yes. none of us can handle a crowd of more than 20 people. So uh, it, it's it's it, the pressure to perform at something like archery must be huge. I mean, it's it's a you're on your own. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have a coach when you're practicing and, and that kind of thing. Is, is your coach with you? Uh, at competition as well my coach used to come with me to competitions my my actual coach um and he has competed at two olympic games wow but they happen to be moscow and seoul so he's he got to got to a point where we both agreed the work the coaching work takes place at home yeah and anything beyond that is psychological (laughs) so going to competitions and traveling for competitions you're just putting that work in place and you have to focus on your job at hand so you don't need the coach there necessarily so I have an additional team manager slash coach that comes with me to competitions. How much is skill and practice versus the mind game in archery? What's a percentage split? So once you get to a point where you've you know your form and you've plateaued potentially on your form because you just have to repeat that over and over again. Consistency is key in archery. Once you get to that point, 70% of it is psychological. So it's all, as far as I'm concerned, it's all in the head. If I wake up in the morning and I feel a twinge in a muscle, I have to get beyond that. So I do a lot of breathing techniques and I visualization and work with a psychologist Um, And I find that's way more effective than somebody standing on the line and telling me the the mechanics of what I'm doing. It doesn't help because it just consolidates this negative feeling in your head. Um, And again, it's consolidating a negative feeling in your head. So you have to get over that. Yes. Yeah. So a competition, it's all psychological and you go into 
uh, a very autonomous way of doing things. Yeah, so you just have you just have to execute what you keep on doing and practice, practice, and mm-hmm. keeping your mind in the right uh, frame of mind. I call yeah. it the snowball effect. Oh, so if it's okay. all going well, it snowballs into something very positive. Yeah. And if it's all going badly, it rapidly snowballs yeah. into something very negative. So do you have a superstition? Do you have kind of like, oh, well, no, I have to brush my hair with my left hand on, on the day of a competition or anything like that? Well, I suppose I, I do because the first time I went to a European Championships was in 2014 and my coach actually came with me that time yeah. and he's very old school and he said um he said to me quite seriously but being a young woman I, I took offense at it it's like now you need to make sure that you're looking well tomorrow when you go out onto the field you need to make sure <laughs> your makeup's done and and all the rest and I and so I woke up the next day to make him think like to show how ridiculous this statement was and I showed up in full makeup I had I had eyeliner on I had bright red lipstick on and I showed up at breakfast as like look at this to show him how ridiculous he was being yeah and he's like you look great do that every time so so now you do so now I do when I'm in international competitions every ball, ball gown though yeah exactly well every day I'll wear a different color lipstick and really bright like purples and oranges and reds really? whereas yeah and at home, I'll just normal face and usually in sweatpants or something. And of course, it psychs out the competition because mm. they can see this and they're going to go, and what's with the lipstick? Yeah. Well, for <laughs> me, actually, I it might do that. But for me, it's uh, it's just a routine. So it actually takes my mind off. Yes. Yeah. Off what's about to come. So in the morning time, I'm focused on doing my makeup and yeah. and etc. Um, so then I don't need to sit around all morning you know yes, yeah. nursing my tea and thinking about oh my god what if this happens and this happens and this happens yeah I do my makeup i get on the bus i go to the field and i compete it, it's brilliant to be able to perform at that level and fingers crossed now for for tokyo mm-hmm. uh next year hopefully that that'll all come true tell us the story of how you actually ended up in a wheelchair yeah so i am from a farming background and I have been here since about 1995 and in 97 so when I was six years old I uh, I was very much tomboy wanted to be involved in everything around everything and anybody to do with the farm and so one of and I'd started in school as well at that stage so one of the days was a bank holiday and I wasn't in school wanted to be around the farm quite similar to what's happening now I think with COVID that a lot of kids yeah. are are on farms um daily now instead of sporadically so I was I used to get on my dad's lap and pretend to be driving jeeps yeah. and tractors basically just steering the wheel um and this one morning I wanted to be involved and drive the tractor down to the end of the farm and I was told listen you can drive the tractor when we get to the farm not right now yeah, on the road yeah. but when we get to the farm so I was sitting inside the cab of the tractor on the inside of the wheel um, and I was holding on to the handle above the door and because I was six and I was very bored and easily distracted yeah. um, I was bouncing up and down on the rim of the wheel and I just happened to lose the grip that I was uh, that I was holding on to the handle and I fell out the door of the tractor wow there was no door on this tractor which is why I fell out yeah it's a it used to be a normal normal thing for kind of you know no door on the tractor that's the way it was in Ireland yeah, yeah. 
Um, so I fell out the door, landed on the, the road, um, believing I was thrown in front of the tractor. The tractor was reversed. I happened to be at the back of the tractor. So the back wheel drove over my torso. So I was picked up, put back into the tractor cab. Um, I was blind for about 30 seconds or a minute. That's I have complete memory of the accident. So it's wow. uh, so I do remember that. It's traumatic. Um, and then uh, I realized I had an open wound on my on my armpit. Um, totally able to walk and talk and communicate. There was nothing wrong. Was rushed to hospital. Fine for 24 hours. And at the end of that 24 hours, I actually don't remember going to hospital so I remember the accident part yeah but not getting to hospital when I got to hospital over a 24 hour period when the shock and adrenaline wore off that's when we realized I was disabled wow. and paralyzed from the waist down so I've been in a chair for 23 years that's and you could actually walk straight after the accident yeah wow mm-hmm. and and then the then the injuries kind of took hold or whatever yeah yeah wow mm-hmm. And that's 23 years ago. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so old. life life changed, <laughs> obviously. Um, but you were a child. Were you adaptable at that age to, to the change? How did yeah, you take it? for sure. I always saw it as a challenge. So the I took it pretty well, actually, in, in hindsight. So the physios and the OTs would give me um, tasks to complete. And that's it's something I loved. So I would, yeah. get, I would do it and be like, okay, what's the next thing? Like yeah, it was a game. It's like, right, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? To the point where they used to like, if they had adults who were were not grasping concepts or yeah. base, I would assume just being uh, kind of Stubborn. wallowing <laughs> yeah, okay. in self pity. Um, they would drag me out to demonstrate how to do Go, certain tasks. <laughs> yeah, like the six year old can do Carrie it, can and you're telling us yeah. that you can't. Um. So there was that. And then because we're a small community, farming community, when I left hospital, I was in the children's hospital for eight weeks and then in our national rehabilitation hospital for eight weeks. When I came home, um, the community and my family were very much of the opinion we should normalize everything. Yeah. So I came, I went to the local primary school, adoptions were made, um, a special needs assistant was put in place. I went to local primary school I went to local secondary school um and then I so which is not an uncommon thing for kids but I was bullied in in primary school kids are cruel surprise you realize this when you're older so uh (laughs) that affected me so I when I went to secondary school I went to the local secondary school but not the same one that everyone else went to went to the opposing one you wanted a new start yes and then I but I had initially wanted to go to boarding school to be to very like I in my head I was like I don't want any part of this yeah so I wanted to go to boarding school there was nowhere suitable but in a, a certain time period um one of the boarding schools in Ireland had adapted and made certain changes Mm. and so I then chose to go to that boarding school and uh, that boarding school's uh, kind of idea on the world was um, and sat us all down actually in a meeting in sixth year telling us that if we applied for an arts degree 
we had failed our parents. Lovely. Yes. So every single... That was a good pep talk. It was great. <laughs> so every single person in sixth year, uh, except me, because of accessibility issues, yeah. applied for a course in Trinity. Whether right. they wanted to go to Trinity or not, they applied for a course in Trinity. It was a prestige issue in the school. Mm-hmm. Um, I, this is a very complicated story. I had had an very operation. Interesting though. It's, it's, look, I always say what happens in the teenage <laughs> years influences everything. And look, it's there. It's fresh. Mm-hmm. When I was 16, it was about 10 years after the accident. My, uh, I needed to have an operation to correct scoliosis. Right. Yeah. So, uh, I had a back operation and it was affecting me. Was that just a consequence of sitting in the chair? Yeah. yeah so. It's a consequence of grow. It's like a tree. So, you know, you brace a tree, you strap mm. it so that it grows straight. Yeah, yeah. So because my paralysis existed at a certain point on my torso, you didn't have a brace for the spine. Okay. So as the spine grew, it was able to warp and bend. Yes, yeah, okay. So that had to be corrected when I stopped growing. Okay. And I my back was fused. Right, okay. So I did that when I was 16 at the end of transition year and then went into a very intense exam period. Mm. And so my stress brought out pain in my back. Mm. So I wasn't able to prepare fully for my final exams, my Mm. leaving cert exams. So uh, I was not happy with the results Mm. and I would not accept those results. So I repeated my leaving cert in the local secondary school. So the uh, the uh, six-year-old that likes a challenge uh, wasn't happy with the result, went back and did it again. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so you can see a thread running here. Just can't a you? slight thread. <laughs> yeah. um, so then when I got the results of that, uh, they, had, they had altered the acceptance criteria mm. into university. So up to that point, um, whatever points you got in the exams, you took the course yeah. given it was it was a blank blanket for everybody in Ireland when I repeated my leaving search they changed the criteria so if you right. identified as somebody with a disability or you identified as somebody from a socioeconomic background yeah, yeah. like poor socioeconomic background they they put aside places in university for those individuals yeah so about 10 percent of the the courses were put aside so when I re when I redid my exams and got my results, I could pick any course in right. Ireland, yeah, regardless of the points, and I could get into it, that course. So I did my, uh, I got my results, and I had applied for a pie in the sky course, um, a lot more, a lot higher than the points I'd gotten, yeah, and got into that course. Mad. What, did, what what was that course? Uh, film and broadcasting with French. Oh, with French. <laughs> with French. You didn't want to we, just be a filmmaker, you wanted to be a French filmmaker. I did, I did. <laughs> I wanted to do something that would bring me joy after yeah. going through secondary school. Uh, but I wasn't in the right headspace for it. I was still suffering with a lot of chronic pain. and. Did uh, the, can I ask, did yeah. the bullying stop in secondary school? Yes, it did. Yeah. So I had a bit of a hangover from that. I'd say. So yeah. I went into secondary school and I felt 
like I needed to trust a, a much narrower group of people. Mm. And then just the way that things evolve and we move away from each other, um, I found myself isolated again. And then I felt this was like conclusive evidence that, oh, it's you. Yeah, yeah. So when I went to the boarding school, I was like, right, I'm going to treat this as a glass bowl. Yeah. This is me in a fishbowl. As soon as I get out of here, I can go and do my own thing. Yeah. But for now, yeah. I'm just going to stay in my lane and I'm going to get through it. Yeah. And so I had the operation when I was 16. And then for my 17th birthday, ran, like, I don't know where it came from because I certainly didn't warrant getting it. But everyone in my year who were boarders threw me a birthday party. Ah, cool. Yeah. So in my head, I went, I'm pushing all these people away. Yeah. And yet they still want yeah. to create a relationship with me. So at that point, I realized, which is very profound at that point, that I should be myself. Yeah. And people will come to me. Yes. As opposed to pushing people away. Yeah. And being miserable. Mm. I'd rather be myself and be happy mm. and let people come into my life than push people away, be miserable. Mm and not have anybody protection mechanisms you know this but, is true. but you, you and you probably had more to deal with than than most you know mm-hmm. m- most most people everybody's unique and everybody's different you know it's kind yeah. of one of those things mm-hmm. uh, uh but we're all the same too mm-hmm. but you probably had an accelerated and a, and a much more exaggerated version of that you know because of of the difference in mm-hmm. primary school you know that yeah. that probably came to you a lot earlier in terms of a maturity thing per- mm-hmm. perhaps um, but it's a lot to go through. It but is. It must, have been, it must have been quite a moment when there was a, a birthday party at 17, you yes. know? No, it definitely was. And I felt, I, I felt this weird sort of combination of guilt and happiness because yeah. you're pushing people away and you're like, okay, fine. So uh, although I didn't, I didn't stay friends with people from school, still acquaintances and all, all the rest, yeah. but it, it definitely led me to form great friendships because yeah. from day one of being of meeting somebody I'm 100% myself this and is, if you this want this is what you get yeah, <laughs> yeah basically and I'm difficult I'm not easy so <laughs> if you stick around yeah uh we'll be great friends for a very long time but uh it's yeah, yeah it's kind of it's an interesting thing when you're when you have to like being yourself is hard like opening yourself up and, and saying take me as as I am is a difficult yeah. thing and it's something that kids haven't grasped and friends of mine are only just grasping now as they come into their 30s so I'm very I'm very happy that I realized that at a much younger age find, like people say I need to find myself and it, and it kind of is it, it's true in some ways but you're there all along is mm-hmm. the is the whole thing mm-hmm. it's the whole Dorothy you just you know you, you <laughs> could just, just click your heels but you know when, when we're kids we're moving away from our parents in terms of independence and then when we get to teenage years we're moving you know mostly towards or we value the opinion of our peers more mm-hmm. than than anything else and like everybody has to go through that and mm-hmm. people deal with it in a myriad of different ways but everybody does go through that but ultimately you will end up having to be yourself mm-hmm. you will end up having to be that but for some people it takes you know much much longer I mean they mm-hmm. they don't 
kick into that till they're 50, 60, whatever. Yeah. And maybe some people don't ever get there. Mm-hmm about the whole actually well who are you and what makes you unique and what are you going to do with that Mm -hmm. you know and that's uh probably brings us back you know what i mean to to life gave you a lemon Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and next thing you're kind of talking about going to the paralympics and you're kind of going okay that's lemonade yeah you know that's 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 absolutely brilliant Mm -hmm. when it came to the world of work then you went to college i did so i did a year in dit at that course yeah and then quickly realized I wasn't in the headspace for it. You are not a French filmmaker. <laughs> I'm not. No, unfortunately. Um, so I left that after a year and then I decided to go and do my undergrad in equine business. Graduated in 15, 2015. And then, so when I, le- when I left the film broadcasting course, I was a little bit spirally again. Um, and I had done archery when I was young and yeah. given it up. And when I went to DIT on a Clubs and Societies Day, a friend of mine was kind of recruiting for the archery club. Yeah. And he just signed me up. So I went to, I went Mondays and Tuesdays to Belvedere and compete and just practiced. And it just so happened while I was doing that, um, there was a group of people going to Stoke Mandeville. Oh yeah, the, the 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 home of the Paralympics. Yes, that is the very very first place it was it held. Is. Yeah, and um, they asked, they saw that I was doing a lot more competing and wanted me to go, and I said, yeah, sure, I'll go with you guys. Wow. So a month before, um, a month before London, they had the Stoke Mandeville Invitational. Cool. So went to that. But in the meantime, I had gotten a job at the London Olympics and Paralympics. So when I finished up in Stoke Mandeville, Brilliant. I got on a train and went to London yes. and Amazing. started working in the Excel Center for Brilliant. the Olympics and Paralympics before I started in Maynooth to do equine business. Well, wow. then joined the Maynooth Archery Club. And when I finished, I went or I went to the World Championships in Germany in 2015 Excellent. for Paralympic qualification where I finished ninth. <laughs> <laughs> that that brings you into, uh, you know, the, the next phase. You went into the working world. What was that like as a wheelchair user? Do you think there was a difference in how you had to approach getting a job versus somebody else? There's a few differences. So I've noticed, uh, I talk about this a, a bit with different individuals and people with disabilities often think it's I'm not getting a job because of my disability and yeah. it affects yeah. the confidence and they don't go and just keep beating on the door and you have to remind people that everybody is in this situation so people place a lot of blame personal blame on the fact that I didn't get the job because mm. they saw my wheelchair and and I didn't get the job um Whereas it, it is a confidence thing and a persistence thing. You have to continue to ask and ask and ask and ask. For me, I found a lot of things that I wanted, industries I wanted to get into, especially after doing the equine business undergrad, you'd go and you'd apply for a job you really wanted and the building mm. wasn't accessible. So I've done a few, yeah. done a few interviews in buildings that were definitely not accessible and been offered jobs right okay. and buildings that were 
mildly inaccessible that just needed a bag of concrete to build a ramp a ramp and just kind of flat out would reject me but made the error of telling me that I was perfect for the job in the interview uh that's frustrating and then going right okay I'm just going to I'm gonna I'm gonna lay out that I need to I need to say I'm in a wheelchair to let them reject one way or the other but sorry you were at the CV stage yes you were kind of going by the way I need to flag this here yeah um and then sent the CV off to a friend of mine who was a recruiter and instantly would ring me going take it off take yeah. it off now you you're, can't you're, do you're, that you're deselecting yourself there yes it, you know I mean you're not supposed to be getting deselected at all mm-hmm. when you went for interviews and they didn't know you were in a wheelchair beforehand was there did you get different reception or did you ever feel a kind of a oh oh she's in a wheelchair no, I found I would get a lot more admiration and a lot more positivity if I oh, cool. didn't. So if I showed up and they went, oh, she mm. got here and she's in a chair. That's that's pretty right. impressive. She's pretty capable too. Oh, yeah. better offer her a job. Yeah. Because um, that happened, that's happened twice with roles in the UK for the Olympics job. I did a couple of interviews on the phone. Actually, they had a policy if you identified as having a disability, you were automatically given a first round interview. Okay, yeah. So I did the first round interview on the phone, did a second round interview, and they went, okay, so we're getting on to the third round. You can do it on Skype or you can do it in person. Yeah. And I was like, well, you know what? I'm not working right now. I'll just, yeah. I'll fly over. Take a trip. It's easy. Yeah. Uh, flew in that morning. Aer Lingus nearly had me late. Got the train from Heathrow down to XL did the interview and you know you're you're you arrive you're an Irish person who's gotten a flight over that's the first thing yeah but secondly oh you're in a chair and you've gotten a flight over so they didn't know before this no oh okay cool so that reflected I felt like that reflected really yes well I mean because it showed that I wanted the role yeah like it showed that I was really I'm not just phoning it in here I really want this role and then the second role that I did that for was for um, a race course in the UK as well yeah and I got offered the role but yeah I had sort of they're like oh what challenges do you think yeah and you automatically have to tell a story yeah that includes your disability and then they suddenly realize they're like oh we're talking to this really competent person yes oh she has a disability that's pretty cool that she can do that so when so you, for the most part, it's been positive then, really. Yeah, it's yeah. when people have that epiphany moment. Yeah. It's if you tell them pre that you have a disability, they start having, yeah. they start having conniption. Like they start having palpitations. They, they build up the problems in their head. Yeah. Whereas if they don't know about it, there's no problems there. Mm-hmm. I can relate to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I uh, just for full disclosure, I did have a, a, a team many years ago and uh one of the one of the people on the team was uh, was a wheelchair user, and I was that guy who kind of went, "But hang on, how's this going to work? How's this going to work? How's this going to work? How's this going to work?" And it turns out it wasn't a problem. But I'll be honest, you know, uh, even as uh, as um, clued in as I think I am, mm-hmm. I still kind of went with the problem, problem, problem. Mm-hmm. So you know, I kind of I get it. I, mm-hmm. I put my hand up that that I would do that as well. And has there been any negative experiences in that that you kind of in applying for a job where you kind of felt oh no that they've just seen the wheelchair and that's all that's happened yeah for sure I mean there 
there was a period I, when I was in college, I made a rule this three months or four months off Malark that we have. Yeah. It's not going to work. So I've worked every single uh, summer I've been off or any free time I've been off. So when I was applying for kind of, for again, contract work at a number of race courses, I would go to offices and mm. kind of like, oh, okay, well, all the offices are upstairs, but maybe we could move a desk downstairs yeah. and it'll be fine. Um, or there was, uh, there's a, a horse registration place. And again, like I was saying, there's a step in, but that was it. Everything was on the one level once you got in that step. Yeah. Um, and been rejected from those jobs. But yet I went to Punchstown Racecourse and walked through the front door. I'd never been to Punchstown, yeah. uh, but I walked through the front door of the office and went, oh, here we go. Yeah. This is just not, oh, I don't know why I'm here. I'm yeah. wasting my time and their time. Yeah. Um, and did the interview and that was fine and went home and got a phone call going, hey, we really like you and we'd love you to work with us. Brilliant. And I'm going, I'm sorry, what? Yeah. That's not going to work for me. What are you talking about? Yeah. And I, I kind of went, all right, fine. Let's yeah. let's see what your solution is. And arrived that morning and yes, the rest of the office was upstairs and I was downstairs with a couple of other people who worked in Punchestown, but not necessarily on your on a department that yeah. I was was assigned to. But everything I could possibly need was downstairs, and yeah. they wanted to take a chance and see how it would work. And I was open to the idea of it, and so that came from something that I had assumed with the chair was never going to work. And with a yeah. little bit of creative thinking, it worked really well. And that's the other thing I think we talk about hiring people with disabilities into multinational companies or bigger yeah. companies. Um, but I think a lot of self-esteem and trying to get around that depression is based on how valued you feel. Yes. And yeah. values linked to having a job and seeing a reward for the work you put in. So something simple like, I don't need to work in a Facebook or in a big multinational. I want to work in my local solicitor's office or my local corner shop. And just by providing yeah. a ramp into that or moving a couple of bookshelves facilitates somebody to, yes. yeah. to feel valued in society. And although I have achieved this, that was because my family are... Mm. weird overachievers and I and yeah. not that they put pressure on me but I saw that in front of me and felt I needed to emulate that yes versus yeah. somebody else who just wants a job to to go from nine o'clock in the morning to five o'clock in the evening and feel like they've gotten out of their house and spoken to somebody yes yeah that is something that's definitely overlooked as well yeah yeah absolutely which is yeah. really frustrating yeah. to watch have your what category would you put your family into? Are they protective of you or are they let her off? She's going to get it done. Yeah, it's the, <laughs> it's the let her off thing. I, uh, I get sent off to, to mm. pick up the most random things for the farm. Yeah. Um, things I could never lift or car like pick up. And I, you'll see me when I arrive to, 
a location. And it's only at that point I realize it's strange because everybody in the yeah. shop or warehouse looks at me like, and, and they send you. Yeah, yeah. You do realize this has to all have to be loaded here. Yeah, <laughs> basically. You want me to do this? <laughs> so, but that is base. that was basically my dad from a very early age you have we have these things to register cattle and make sure that everything is, yeah. is right we have accounts for them and from a very early age shifted from okay you're not physically on the farm but you are a part of the farm so you're now going to operate yeah the office and then going oh i've got free time do you want me to go down to the local co-op because i can do that for you yeah and then it just kind of escalating from there I suppose so now I get sent to do lots of things so it is really about for me it was like what are you exposed to and what do you let do so they're not protective at all yeah they're like this has to be done who's going to do it and if I put my hand up for it they just trust that yeah I'll get it done somehow yeah and in terms of how bosses see you so you've you've worked for a Mm -hmm. couple of different companies now at this stage do they have the same attitude or do you find that you know when you when you get into a job you know have you have you had Mm -hmm. some bosses that kind of get it and just know how to make sure that you're you're given the free reign that you obviously thrive in Mm -hmm. or have you had some people kind of hold you back because they assume things i've been pretty good in that way i mean it depends what level the boss is so I've been managed and then had an overall boss. So um, the boss type person, uh, especially if male and older, will come in and see you and be like, oh, fair play to you. Oh, <laughs> fair play to you. <laughs> kind of like, thank you. I don't know whether you're saying this to me because I'm a young female or I happen to be a young female in a wheelchair. It's patronizing either way. I don't like it. <laughs> But thank you very much. Don't fire me. Um, and but then the manager, yeah, getting it. So uh, for me, I've been lucky where I've had very laid back managers. So yeah. they're they're not micromanagers. They they're like we're doing this. And here's your job for the day. Come back Crack to me on. if you have any issue. Um, and been very happy to work that way. I've had one person who, um tried to be that to work in that way but that wasn't inherently who they were for them no they they knew that was the way to work but inherently weren't able to do it so they micromanaged a good bit um which didn't affect me personally it affected the whole team so it wasn't based on the fact that i was in a chair when i was with um a multinational before i I found that I was very, I found there wasn't a progression in it. There was, I was very, I was stuck. I wasn't challenged. I was, Mm. I was, and I, and the rest of the people around me were very laid back and, and relaxed. And we're just trying to get from A to B. And it, it annoyed me a lot. I was, I was looking for an exit strategy for a while. Um, and it just happened. The person who hired me was promoted and all the rest. So I wasn't really in their company. They ended up yes, yeah. managing the whole floor at that point. But at the Christmas party, when we were chatting, 
And I it used to stress me out working because people around me, I had to like kick them to get them to do anything. Yeah. Um, very much like, hey, will we do this now? In a very nice way, trying to encourage people to to get to get going. Um, and that was that was fine. But at the Christmas party, um, the 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 guy who hired me was like, I'm so happy. I may I took a chance and hired you. I knew that you were good with people, but I'm so happy because your team has never been more productive. Right. And you didn't even think it was that productive. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I was there going, uh, okay. <laughs> well, all right. And what were they like before? <laughs> I know. I was just, I was kind of like scratching my head. I was very complimentary and I was very happy to 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 be pinpointed as the reason yeah. to, to be pushing productivity. Um, but I found it just so funny because I didn't feel <laughs> yeah you were there like I all. was challenged. I was like I need I need to be doing something different. But um, but I f- I find once you're hired, it's it's something strange about somebody with a disability or somebody who's been challenged. They're problem solvers. Yeah. So I was going to say is that is that your drive for we'll call it productivity, but your drive to <laughs> ticking off these challenges and keep going at it mm-hmm. are you are you trying to prove something do you think sometimes no you are for sure and I don't think it's it's a uniquely somebody with the disabilities no issue. no dif- different things but will drive it for different people but for y- you yeah I I want you know somebody gives me a job um I want to complete it as best of my ability to be like, look, I can do it. Give me more responsibility. Give just keep challenging me and give me more responsibility. I want you, you know, you. How do I describe it? When you get into a company, when you have a disability, when it's taken so long to get to get into to that, that point, company, yeah. you want to prove you're capable and able, and that they hired you for a reason. Mm. Um, you've convinced them that you can do mm. the job. So now you need to prove it. What What do you think are the challenges for wheelchair users, for people with disabilities in the workplace, in, in companies? Yeah, when I, if someone says to me diversity and inclusion, my first thing being from a, the background I'm in is, oh yeah, that's, that's disability. But yeah. when you start applying and researching, not so much. I no. mean, value 500 is, is, is great. Um, they've started and, um, I, I find their work extremely interesting. But from when you start going into it, the onus on recruitment is on race and gender. Yeah. Which when I was doing my exit interview from the multinational I was, I was discussing yeah. earlier, um, the senior VP asked to have a meeting with me to ask me about yeah. diversity. And I made it very clear that their, their focus is not inclusive enough because they're not including disability in that. Um, While I was doing my master's, I was looking for roles and I went to another uh, techie multinational um, to look for a kind of, to have a conversation about possibly getting a job there. Yeah. Um, it was a wider conversation because they had asked me to come in and have a conversation about diversity and inclusion. Mm. 
and what they could do to be better. Yeah. Which I've had a few of those conversations with people. But in order to prep for that meeting, I did research on their own company and on their own website and went to the, the diversity page. And at the top of the of the web page, there was a photograph of somebody I know who's who works for them, who's in a wheelchair. Yeah. Um, so that's the top of the diversity page. And then I read through the material so that I could comment on the language they were using and and everything else. And throughout the entire article or the entire web page, there is not one mention of disability on it. So you have a picture of somebody in a yeah. wheelchair and you don't mention uh, disability yeah. in your diversity and inclusion webpage, that, which just... And so it was all based on race, gender. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. And what, what what can companies do? So apart from mentioning it on a webpage, which mm-hmm. is, you know, nice, but doesn't do anything yeah what what can they what can they actually do on the ground do you think to to make a difference to be more welcoming because you said it yourself like you deselected yourself Mm -hmm. in some ways from things going oh that'll never work yeah so to me the challenge is actually a company if they truly believe in in diversity and inclusion and radically including everybody they have to make it wel- welcoming so that you don't deselect yourself mm-hmm. because that's the big failure on the company's part if you're deselecting because of how it looks yeah is that is that a good yeah, take yeah no that's that's a fair uh it's a fair statement i think um the mindset has to change on both parties yeah so i had to change my mindset i finished up in education uh doing my masters in august and i needed to to reiterate to myself if you feel this role is for you Mm. apply for it Mm. you have to apply for it you have to throw as much muck at the wall and hope it sticks and you can't start creating an issue in your head from a company's point of view um the application process has to be more accessible so i think Again, um, there is a confidence issue and just reducing the scariness of applying for a role. So yeah. companies have started to to recruit people with physical disabilities or any kind of disabilities. There's recruitment drives happening for that. Yeah. But how do you get people to apply? And I do go back to what uh, London 2012, or, yeah, 2012, 2012 did. Yeah. Um, in that they had a huge push for diversity and inclusion and they included on the application form if you want to apply for this role and you have a disability you will have a first round interview now you need to sell yourself yeah that is the same for any applicant but knowing that you will be welcomed into a company yeah is extremely important somebody might say well that's not fair they're going to get a first round interview Mm -hmm. but we're talking about a tiny percentage of people that are going to be applying here and all Mm -hmm. we're doing is kind of as you say making it feel welcome it's that look we'll sit down and talk to you Mm -hmm. I mean it's an hour of a conversation it's not exactly like they're giving you half a million (laughs) you know what I mean they're giving you an hour of their time so um, it's it's not a big deal actually to when you think Mm -hmm. about it because it's you know if you get a hundred applicants how many of them will have a disability? You know, it, it's probably less than five, mm-hmm. maybe. And all you're saying is, look, we'll give you an interview. 
is there is there mistakes that companies make when on the onboarding process you know when they're when they're actually bringing somebody with a dis- disability on board is there is there mistakes made at that point as well in the process do they do they trip themselves up at that point or is it all just oh well no i'm just the you know a worker now and i get treated in the same process i wouldn't say trip up necessarily i will say what i've experienced as being that you can call a token person with a physical disability is you're now facilities best friend okay so facilities come to you and they say right we're gonna we're gonna make sure yeah everything is accessible for you yeah great thanks thanks very much um so i can get into the building i can sit at my desk i can do all those good things and then oh by the way do you mind if we pick your brain about this and so now you are the person on site who is the architectural expert yeah i didn't study architecture yeah but yet everybody comes to me and they're like so we have we have this happening yeah we need your take on it Right, you become a bit of an expert. Yeah, SME in uh, in mm-hmm. in uh, accessibility, basically. And then you're trying you're trying to explain to people, okay, so this is going to work for me, the person who had their disability or has been ha- who has had mm. their disability for twenty three years and has adapted to the world around them. Yeah, I am not reflective of somebody who's only just found themselves. Yeah in a chair I'm not reflective of somebody who's deaf I'm not reflective of someone who's blind I'm not reflective of somebody who has an amputation so yeah. you can't you can't just take my feedback it's great that you are but you can't just take it and then kind of brush your hands against one another and say yeah we're we're diverse we're yes, we're yeah. accessible we're this we had a consultant we had a consultation with Kerry so yes. it's, it's all good do, do you uh do you expect everything to be accessible? No, I definitely don't. If I am the first person who shows up, if I'm the first person who shows up and your building is 30 years old, I am very lenient and very accommodating. Mm. And I go, you know what? I'm more than happy to to wait for this to be done. If you need me to work from home, I can yeah. do that. Um oh, you just, if you want just this section done and then, and I can't access the other parts of the building, but you have plans for that. Yeah. That is absolutely fine by me. The other the other one is, have you ever felt like you being in a wheelchair has stopped other people doing things? If you know what I mean? Because they go, oh, we can't do that because Kerry's with us. Um, usually what happens uh, in good teams is that the person organizing the night out will come over and say, hey, listen, we're thinking of doing this. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah. And you say, okay, yeah, no, that's great. I'll be able to do that section yeah, or that section or I'll come along and do this and this and this. Or they want the whole day to include yeah. everybody. Um, so by asking me directly, I feel, a, I feel a lot better about the decision. Yeah. Versus... Um, this is a story from, from school, actually, which probably didn't help with the you know, bullying thing. But <laughs> I found out a couple of years after leaving primary school about a school tour that we were all meant yeah. to go on. Um, and nonchalantly, this person I was in school with was like, oh, yeah, well, when we were in sixth class, we were supposed to go 
here. Yeah. And the principal sat all of us down and told us we're not allowed to do that because Kerry's coming. You weren't in on that conversation? No. What? Yeah. So I found out a couple of years later and then went, that that she did what? (laughs) That won't have helped how people (laughs) felt about the wheelchair. No. So she was trying to, she was like, and do not bring this up to her because I don't want her to feel bad. Ah, jeez. Thank you for telling me five years later that this was the case. Yeah, well, actually, I wouldn't have probably told you five years later then. (laughs) I mean, ignorance is bliss in that situation. Yeah. God, that's horrendous. I suppose I always think people are diverse. When we talk about diversity and inclusion, there's so many things that can make you different. Everybody is different. And and radical inclusion means including everybody's opinions, everybody's way of doing things, everybody's little nuances of how they are. And it's, it's not so much accommodating them. It's kind of like forming a team around you know, the strengths that are in that team anyway. Mm-hmm. Because I don't like the word accommodating. Accommodating sounds like settling. Mm-hmm. You know, radical inclusion just means everybody's got strength. Mm-hmm. And what are we going to do with that strength? What would you say in terms of your experience of the working world, the sporting world? What would you say to somebody who's in a wheelchair and who's struggling at the moment to kind of find their place in, mm-hmm. a, in a company or find the right company for them or find the right role for them? What would you say? For me, I mean, it it looks like a very nicely wrapped present that, oh, now she's she's in a great company and she's she's made it. Oh, she's applied. She's she's on the cusp of getting to the Paralympics. Great. And it looks like a very over facing thing Mm. for people versus I can tell you where I started. Yeah. And and. It was just by changing my mindset of saying yes to things. I got a role in that multinational company because I wasn't employed. I had been applying for jobs and getting thrown out at the very first instance. Um, A friend of mine in university, um, Sheena Kahl, she asked me to go to give a talk um, to a group of multinationals Mm. about our experience of running an inclusion week in Maynooth University. Um, So, and she also ordered me a bunch of business cards and (laughs) said, right, while we're doing this, you're going to give out your business cards. Yeah. So it basically had my name and number on it and that was it. Yeah. So inevitably, after giving the talk about, and it was just about my experience. It wasn't about me forming some huge speech I was talking off the cuff. Yeah. Um, so at the end of that, when you're chatting over tea and biscuits, the guys from a number of different multinationals who were there were asking, so what are you doing with with yeah. yourself? You know, um, really interesting that you were able to get up and talk. And it's, yeah. it's very easy to get up and talk about your experiences, I found. Uh, it's easier as you go along. Um, I said, oh, I'm not doing anything by the way, but if anything comes up in your company, give me a call and here's... Yeah, hand the card over. It was just that. It was like, here you go. That happened and I got a phone call a couple of days later asking me if I wanted to interview and I just said yes. That was it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there was no, okay, so it's going to be two hours from where you're from and you're going to have to relocate. Yeah. It's like, well, we'll deal with that after yeah. I get the job. Like, I've, I've had no job prospects for... Yeah 
four to six months, this is the first nibble yeah. on the hook. I'm just going to say yes. And if it works out, it works out. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. So taking the opportunity, so that, so that breaking that down, mm-hmm. you got an opportunity to do a talk, you took that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Then you maximize that opportunity by printing out the business cards and by, you know, networking, which mm-hmm. is always massively important for the job hunt of any, for anybody. Yeah. And then the other thing is, you, there will be loads of reasons why you can't do things, but you just kind of went, actually, I just need to get going here. So I'm going to yeah. say yes to this. And the other big thing that I would recommend for anybody is find yourself a cheerleader. <laughs> <laughs> so I had Sheena in that instance. So she was cheering me on. She's like, you can do this. In fact, I'm going to print out business cards for you. At the same time, Spinal Injuries Ireland, they had a life coach option. Cool. Um, and although he didn't give me any radical suggestions, he was just the cheerleader. He's like, you can do this. What do you want to do? Yeah. You can do this. You can do this. So now I'm that for other people. Yeah. You know, when people contact me, I'm like, yes, what do you want? What do you need? We are going to get this. We're going to make this happen. It's difficult. Don't worry. Just somebody said no. No is, it's the first no. How many no's have you gotten? Yeah. One no. That's only one no. It's the (laughs) third no you need to worry about. And you just, you need, you need people around you who are going to cheer you on. And yeah, it's just basically the advice I would, would give is say yes and get a cheerleader. Like they will remind you you're, you're doing okay. Brilliant advice to leave this conversation on. Kerry, mm-hmm. it's been wonderful to talk to you and uh, I'll now uh, get you as a cheerleader for my archery. Uh, let's see if I can start shooting straight. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much for joining me today. Uh, mm-hmm. It's been absolutely fantastic. Good. Thanks for coming. Kerry Leonard there with some great advice for anyone trying to land their first job, that promotion or their dream job. Kerry mentioned the valuable 500 during our conversation and I researched it afterwards. It's a global movement aimed at putting disability on the business leadership agenda. They are gathering signatures from 500 private sector corporations to help unlock the business, social and economic value of people living with disabilities across the world. Their point is simple. Why ignore the potential of 1.3 billion people? I wish Kerry all the best in her new role at Facebook. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do us the greatest favour and share it with all your friends and colleagues. Thank you to the people who gave us a five-star review on iTunes. That really is a gift. If you want to contact the podcast, drop me a mail at stephen at stephennorton.com and you can find more from me at Instagram at the Good Boss Bad Boss Podcast and I promise I'll be back next month with another Good Boss Bad Boss guest. Until then... Goodbye.